I'm sorry for the interruption. We want to consider, first of all, um, the importance of the Gospel to Paul. Um, and uh, that's going to take most of our time this morning. The word gospel appears in the Septuagint of the Old Testament uh, in verbal form some 25 times and a few more times in its noun form. And the Old Old Testament background gives us a sense of what the word means. The verb means to declare or proclaim or announce the good news that an enemy has been defeated or an obstacle overcome. The noun means good news and refers to the content of what's being preached. Uh, Sometimes what is thought of as good news turns out not to be for the one delivering the message. Uh, One only has to think of 2 Samuel 4.8, where David states that the young man who brought him news of Saul's death thought he was bringing David glad tidings, or that is, good news, or gospel. But the young man was put to death for that news. However, the intent is clear even in that passage because it's talking about salvation or deliverance from an enemy or a perceived enemy and the defeat of that enemy. Isaiah 52.7 gives us a good example of the verbal forms where we read, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day I am the one who is speaking. Here Here I am. It reminds me of the things Jesus says. Here am I. Uh, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news, it is proclaims good news, of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Notice the connection between the happiness and all of that with your God reigns. Uh, When we read that Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, He was announcing the reign of God. He was announcing that He was proclaiming the message that ushered in the kingdom of God. That the message is the gospel. Jesus said that His kingdom was not of this world. In other words, it was the kingdom that did not have the world as its source or power. Neither would His kingdom come by force as other kingdoms of the world. Rather, His kingdom would be victorious through changed hearts and lives. <clears throat> Second Kings 7.9 gives us an example of the noun form. Um, the context of that chapter uh, covers this, a siege of, the, of, the, of Samaria by the Arameans. Uh, They had been attacking the city and the people inside were suffering from famine. At the climax of the situation, two women came to King Jehoram. Uh, One complained about the other because they had agreed to kill and eat her child one day and then kill and eat the other child the next day. The second woman had refused to give up her child. And this, when the king heard this, he was greatly disturbed. And it was after this that Elisha sent word to the king that all would be well. The day after Elisha sent word, the Arameans thought they heard chariots from Egypt and abandoned their camp, leaving tents, food, and clothing behind them. Well, there were four lepers sitting at the gate of the city. They discussed their situation among themselves and decided to see if the Arameans would give them any food. They figured, hey... We're either going to die sitting out in front of this gate or we're going to die at the hands of the Arameans. So what difference does it make? When they got to the camp of the Arameans, they found it empty and started eating. Then it dawned on them that they were wrong. 
Then they said to one another, 2 Kings 7, 9, We are not doing right. This is a day of good news. Or we could translate that, This is a day of gospel. But we are keeping silent. If we wait until morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore, let us go and tell the king's household. In other words, in other words let us go and tell the king this great news. The good news was that the enemy was gone. Elijah's words came true. They were delivered as foretold. Not only was the enemy gone, food was restored to, the, to those in the city. And the good news was salvation from death. Now that's, that's what gospel means. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the gospel. Deliverance from an enemy. Deliverance from death. Um, being saved from from hard things uh, from from the enemies of this world, but the gospel has a little bit in the New Testament has a little bit different focus because it focuses on the real enemy of our souls, the sin that is in us and the devil that that taunts us. So, if you can get a pen or pencil and and just make a note in your Bible, because <clears throat> we're going to go through several references. I'm not going to read them all the way through, but I'm going to refer to them and try to bring out the, the main points of the passages. Mind you, we are not, uh, we are not going to look at every word for gospel, uh, whether verb form or, or noun form, because it occurs too many times in Paul's epistles. But we're going to look at some very important ones to demonstrate how important the gospel was to the Apostle Paul. So I want you to turn, first of all, to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. Now I know that that's a familiar passage to everyone, but if you'll turn there for a moment and, and just kind of highlight the places where Paul talks about, about the gospel. He says, first of all, in the very first verse, He identifies himself as a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called in his apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh and was declared son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So Paul has been set apart for a particular purpose and that is that purpose is to proclaim um, the gospel. He thanks God in verse 8 that through Jesus Christ for those who were in Rome Uh, because their faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. Um, And then he says, For God, whom I serve in uh, in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of His Son. Um, That's the core of Paul's life. And he mentions that all the time. He says in verse 15, Because of that, I am eager to preach the gospel to all of you who are in Rome. Why is that? Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, or the gospel. Why is that? For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. The gospel is God's power to save. God's power to save, friends, is not in how good of a life we live. Though we should live a good life because our lives should testify to the reality of the gospel in our lives. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. That doesn't mean that we're not going to fail or sin. But it means that we should be moving in a direction where our lives do proclaim the faith we confess. But that isn't what God will use to save people. 
he may use that to get people's attention. But he's not going to use that to save people. Why? Because it is the power of God to salvation. It is the gospel. That's the power of God to salvation. So therefore, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 12 to 23. <clears throat> and see how important this gospel is to Paul. It's the power of God into salvation. But what was Paul willing to do to proclaim that gospel? 1 Corinthians 9, verses 12 to 23. And again, I'm only highlighting the verses. In verse um, 12, Paul says, We endure all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. He says, Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly at the altar have their share in with the altar. So also the Lord has directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Verse 15, But I have used none of these things. And he explains why. If I preach the gospel, verse 16, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. What then is my reward, he asks in verse 18. That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as to, make, as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. Why was that important to Paul? Well, we read in the verses following that he is free from all men, and yet he's, and he's made himself a slave to all men. Why? Verse 19, that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as, though, as, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a a fellow partaker of it. It sounds almost like he's doing all these things in order that he might be saved, but that's not what he means. What he's trying to tell us is that the gospel is so important that he accommodates himself in various situations to win the more people. So to the Jew, he he became like a Jew so that he might win more Jews, that he might win Jews. Uh, I think that's why he went to the temple and, and offered a sacrifice after a vow that he made to demonstrate that he was not, he was not at all against them. Um, he was against what they taught. But, but to those who were not, and to those who were under law, as under the law, and not, not, not law in that he would, uh, the law of God is what he's referring to, though he himself was not under that law, he knew that. Again, I refer back to that passage in Acts where he sacrificed in the temple when he got caught in the latter part of Acts. <coughs> he did that because he wanted to show that he was that he might win, that he 
was not that though he was not under the law, he wanted to win those who were. And to those who are without law at all, I guess we could might say they're antinomians, um, he would he would accommodate to them, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ. In other words, he would accommodate himself as long as it didn't lead to any immorality or wrong on his part, because he wanted to win those without the law, or without law, period. And so to the weak he became weak, and so he became all things to all men. Why? For the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of that. I think what he means is a partaker in the suffering that goes along with proclaiming the gospel. He would he would do whatever it needed to do on his part just to make it be known. Second Corinthians chapter four, verses um, one to six. <clears throat> he says that he has um, uh, received. Uh, he says, we have this ministry, we've received ministry, mercy, um, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So there you have this idea of living your profession of faith outwardly. And then he goes on to say, but even if our gospel is veiled, people can't, they, they, they hear us, they see us, um, but they don't accept it. They, it's, it's veiled to them. He says it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So Paul is concerned about the gospel and he realizes that as he goes out and preaches, as he becomes all things to all men, as he sacrifices whatever needed to be sacrificed for the sake of the gospel, there were still those who did not respond because not everybody's going to respond. But he did it anyway. He did it anyway and he didn't mind doing it. It was his joy, I believe, to do that. Because he understood that God would, choose, God would save His elect through the preaching of the gospel. And that those who did not receive it, they were people who were blinded um, and they were unbelieving because they were blinded by the God of this world. So the gospel was important not only to proclaim salvation, but that people might be saved. It was also important to Paul because he understood that it also um, it also pointed out or directed attention to those who rejected it as those who were those who were condemned at least as far as he understood it. So both are true, and and both are important. We often forget that both are important. It's important for us to see people who are saved. It's also important for us to see people who reject. I believe that we should see that to make us more fervent in our prayers for those to whom we speak. Because it's always going to be a mixed, a mixed, uh, a mixed blessing. There's going to be those who are saved and those who reject. And those who reject should cause us even the more to pray for them. Now we turn to Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. 
Now here we understand the context of Galatians. They were turning away. Paul says they were turning away to a different gospel. Even though there's just one gospel, uh, there were people who were disturbing um, the church in, the churches in Galatia. Uh, that's what chapter, chapter 1 verses 6 through 12 is about. And he goes on to say in verse 8, But even though we or an angel from heaven... So even if somebody has an experience of a spiritual being that tells them uh, something else, if any, if anyone, an angel or whatever, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. As we have said before, so I say, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. So, is Paul a man pleaser? He says in verse 10, no. If I'm trying to please man, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He says the gospel that was preached to him, the one that he proclaims, he says, I received it. I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 11 and 12. That gospel is so crucial that in Galatians chapter 2, we see Paul rebuking Peter for being hypocritical. <clears throat> Peter would eat with the Gentiles, but when certain, certain brethren came from, um, from Jerusalem, um, he would stop and he separated himself from them. And so Paul rebukes him. And he says, even verse chapter 2, verse 11 through 21, he says in verse 13, And the rest of the Jews joined with Peter in the, that hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their, their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to, to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, he was eating with Gentiles before the Jews came, and when the Jews came, he separated himself from them. And so he was a hypocrite. He was acting like a Jew in one place. He, was acting like, he wasn't acting like a Jew in another. And he was confusing people. And Paul says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. I think he's just using that as, I think when he says that, sinners among the Gentiles, that's the way the Jews saw them. Nevertheless, he says in verse 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The Jews understood the law to keep them separate from Gentiles. They weren't even allowed to go in the same home and eat with them. And so that in, 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 in the churches in Galatia, Peter's up there going and eating with the Gentiles, going to their homes, when the Jews come down, oh no, I got to stop that because that's you know that's that's what Jews we think that's wrong, and and he plays this hypocrite, <clears throat> and Paul says, 
we're not justified by keeping the law in that sense. We're justified by believing in Christ, by faith in Him and not by works of the law. Paul concludes Galatians chapter 2 in verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself or gave Himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In other words, if, if, if righteousness comes through the law, then there's no point to the gospel. It's useless. And that gospel goes all the way back to Abraham in Galatians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. In verse 8, we see Paul talking about the fact that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. That was the gospel to Abraham. That, the gospel, that, that, the, that, 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 that salvation was going to go even to the Gentiles. And so this is important. It's not only a New Testament concept, it's an Old Testament concept. It's what the scriptures of Paul's day um, taught about the gospel. <clears throat> In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, if you could turn there, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. Paul writes, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given a, as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. And so we ask, well, what is this salvation that, that Paul is talking about, this gospel of our salvation? What is it? Well, if you drop down to chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, you can read it. It's the fact that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, verse 1. Um, we lived in those. We, we, we flourished in those. It's the same thing that now works in the sons of disobedience. We all, too, lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in its desires. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with Him. And then he says in verse 8-10, through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. You've been saved. What is the Gospel about? Your salvation. You've been saved. You have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of the works of. It's not a result of works that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, unto good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, what is salvation? It's being delivered from our sin, from the bondage of sin, and that's what makes it so important. So that Paul asks for the church in Ephesus to pray for him in his preaching. He says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18 through 20, if you could turn there. Well, I'll actually just pay attention to verse 19. Ephesians 6, verse 19 and 20, Paul says this, and pray, he's telling the church, pray on my behalf 
that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now we might ask ourselves if the Apostle Paul, who as I understand it was probably the greatest evangelist who ever lived, he walked over ten. He walked some ten thousand miles to by boat and by land. He walked and he took a boat some ten thousand miles in his lifetime to take the gospel to the then known world. And some even believe that he got all the way to Spain. If Paul the apostle could ask the church of Ephesus to pray for him that his mouth might be open to make known with boldness the gospel then I don't know about me, and I don't know about you, but maybe we need to pray more uh, for one another and for other pastors and things. Because if he is a, if he's an example of an evangelist, I fall way short. If he's an example of someone doing the gospel ministry work, then I know myself and I know others. We fall way short of that. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. I want you to notice the how important the gospel was that Paul was willing to give up his own his own life. He writes in Philippians chapter one, verses twelve through eighteen, and I'm only going to highlight some things. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard. He's in Rome. And, there, and, and he is preaching the gospel in Rome. And even the guards that were around him knew of the gospel and everyone else. There were also people from Caesar's household uh, that had been converted because of Paul's ministry. And Paul goes on in verse 5. He says, well, there's some, to be sure, who are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. And so, you know, you get discouraged, right? I, you know, we hear preachers preaching the gospel and they use it for other things. Some of them use it to make money. Um, there's a lot of them that use the gospel to make money. But what does Paul say? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Paul's happy that Christ is proclaimed, even if they're not doing it for the right reasons, even if their heart's not in it. It didn't matter to him. Why? Because the power of salvation is not is not resident in the individual the power of salvation is resident in the message because it's the message that God uses so should we be discouraged when we see these great big 20,000 member churches and we hear these guys preaching and we know that it's not the truth but at some point in there they mention the gospel And at some point in there, maybe someone really comes to a saving knowledge of Christ. Should we rejoice in that? And I say, yes, we should. We could wish those other people would change. 
But we should rejoice that even in contexts where where things aren't right the way they should be, even in contexts where there's selfish ministers who just want want to grab all that they can, who are who are power hungry, and there's a lot of power hungry pastors. Even in small churches, there are power power hungry pastors. Well, are they sincere in their preaching of the gospel? I have no idea. But what I do know is this: that if Christ is proclaimed, then I'm going to rejoice even if it's in that context, because God uses the message. He uses the message true when the man is walking righteously, but He uses that message even when the, man, when the man's heart is, uh, is, um, is not in the right place. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3-5. to And I only want to draw your attention to one part in here, Paul says uh, he pays. Pay, uh, he prays for um, the church there always uh, because he's heard of their faith, and he says because of the hope <clears throat> laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, <clears throat> the gospel. What is the gospel <clears throat> talking about? It's talking about the hope laid up for you in heaven. Not for your best life now on earth, but the hope laid up for you in heaven. You may have a horrible life on earth, but your hope is not in this life. This life will end. I don't care how rich or healthy you are, this life will end. So the only way you have hope is not in this world, but in the world to come. Our hope, according to the Gospel, is laid up for us in heaven. Drop down to verse 21-23. to Um, Paul mentions that they had been alienated and and hostile in mind. They were engaged in evil deeds. Yet God has now reconciled you in the... In, in his Christ has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order that in order to present you before him holy and blameless that's the goal that we be presented holy and blameless before God that's repeated that's repeated as well in Ephesians and so we got to remember that the gospel has hope for us. The gospel saves us from our sins. The gospel, the gospel changes our lives. The gospel gives us a future hope. The gospel, <clears throat> the gospel, the intent is to present us holy and blameless before God. The gospel is important. And then there's something else in First Thessalonians two, uh, one to twelve. Um, and I'm only going to mention that passage in passing because Paul again is talking about the uh, hardship that they went through in preaching um, the gospel. I draw your attention to a very important passage though and that's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 3 to 12. The Thessalonians were suffering some persecution and um, <clears throat> the Apostle Paul reassures them in verses three to twelve of Second Corinthians or Second Thessalonians one, and he says, "Those who are giving you this trouble is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering." 
<coughs> and then he makes this statement. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. Well, when's he going to do that? When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now just stop there for one moment. The affliction is going to, it may continue. And it may continue throughout our lives. And it will continue until the coming of Christ. I'm telling you, people who look to this world to be relieved from the afflictions of this world are looking to the wrong place. Because they're not all going to be removed until the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. Now Paul's specifically talking about affliction to Christians from non-Christians. We don't experience that much in our country, at least not yet. But our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing that right now in China, in Iran, in other places um, in, the, in, in, in Asia. They are experiencing this kind of thing, affliction, affliction, affliction. And what do they have to look forward to? That someday a democracy will come and relieve them of all of that? No. Their comfort only comes as they realize that that God will give affliction to those who afflict them when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. And what is He going to do? He's going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for a test for our testimony to you was believed that's a frightening thought is it not that they will suffer eternal destruction but you see God the gospel draws a line in the sand and it says come over on this side and if you don't then that's the only alternative Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. So Paul in Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse thirteen to seventeen says, We should give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because he has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And He has called you through our gospel that you, may, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's quite a contrast to chapter, chapter 1 verses 3 to 12. That they are going to gain this, this they're going to gain um, this glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, this gospel was so important to him that he was not only willing to suffer for it himself, but he also encouraged his young, um, his young, his young, uh, what do you call him, apprentice, Timothy, to the same thing. In Second Timothy one verse eight to fourteen, look over there.
He says, therefore do not, he says to Timothy, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Why? Well, because God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from when? From all eternity. I'm going to pick that up again next week. But notice that. Suffer with me for the Gospel. Suffer according to the power of God. Because He saved us. And that salvation was granted in eternity past. And so Paul says later on in verse 12, For this reason I suffer all things, but I am not ashamed, for I know who I am believed, who I have believed, and am convinced that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him. Paul, was, Paul suffered all things for the sake of the elect, that they might be saved. Now, I want you to think about these passages that we've looked through. Look at what Paul says about the Gospel. The Gospel is what saves us. The Gospel is the means whereby we stand. That is, the means whereby we deal with sin in our lives and relate to other people and live, and live a godly life. Uh, the Gospel may bring suffering, but it's worth it because it, it is the means... Uh, of, of the gospel that God saved the elect. Apart from believing the gospel, people will perish under judgment and wrath. Therefore, we must pray for those who take the, go- who take the gospel to this world through missionary endeavors, for those who are pastors and teachers in the church, and for one another that we make the gospel known as we ought. We should also pray for those to whom we speak, asking that the Lord may be merciful that those to whom we speak would be like Lydia in Philippi, whom Paul says the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Acts chapter 16 and verse 14. We should learn from this not only the importance of the gospel to Paul the apostle and the church, but to us as well. So we ask ourselves, is the gospel important to us? Is the gospel important to you? Do we believe the gospel is the power of God to salvation to all who believe? Do we believe that? Whatever else identifies our church, I mean, we should be identified with Christ, to be sure. But if it's not identified with gospel proclamation, then it's not properly identified. The church has been given a commission by Christ. He said... All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, Jesus says, 
When they asked Him, Lord, is it at this time You are restoring the kingdom of Israel? Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Well, I understand that the apostles could reach Judea and Samaria, But how did they get to the remotest parts of the earth? In their day, they got as far as they could, but that didn't mean just the remotest parts of the earth as far as they saw it. It meant the remotest part of the earth that God has intended. And that's then why it's important for us to take out the gospel. So we are to preach the gospel. We have seen that unless people repent and turn to Jesus, they will perish eternally. Well, why is it so important? Why is the gospel so important? I mean, come on, Jesus died for our sins. I mean, you know, um, we're not as bad as we're not as bad as as, as we're, we're not we're not that bad, are we? I mean, don't we do good things? I mean, what's so necessary about the gospel? Aren't there good people in the world? God just going to walk past them and say, "Hey, you know, it's okay. You did you did a good job. Come on up, be be, be my buddy forever or something." Um, why is it um, that people have to turn from their own way and um, embrace the gospel of of our Lord Jesus? We are not always too certain of the gospel, I don't think. I'm not sure what we think, but I know that for personally, I lack zeal. I mean, I'm not going to accuse you of that. Uh, but maybe the lack of zeal is because there's not an understanding or we don't truly understand the gospel. And many people have responded to the gospel by raising a hand or walking an aisle. I don't mean by that that they are not born-again Christians. I'm, I'm only suggesting that they don't really understand the gospel. If we do not understand the gospel, we will not appreciate its absolute necessity. So we've highlighted many scripture texts that point out the importance of the gospel. So what is the gospel that makes it so important? And that leads me to the second goal I have this morning. And that is to talk with you about the foundation of the gospel. And to do that, we have to begin at the beginning. That's what Paul did with those who were unfamiliar with the Scripture. And it's probably an approach that we should take as well. And we have two examples of Paul's preaching to those who are unfamiliar with the Scripture that give us a clue to how we might talk to people who, I mean, more and more people today are not familiar with the Bible. And so, if we can follow the example of the Apostle Paul, we'll learn something, I believe, that's very important for us to um, to grasp. In Acts chapter 14, verses 15 to 17, um, Paul was, uh, oh, uh, they, were, they were about to worship Paul, I think it was in Lystra, they were about to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas because they had healed somebody. And uh, Paul's, Paul said, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop. We're people just like you. And he says in verse 15 and 
following, he says, We preach the gospel to you in order that you should turn from these vain things, that is, these idols, to a living God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. And in the generations gone by, He permitted the nations to go their own ways. And yet He did not leave Himself without witness in that He did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now pause just a moment. What are the two salient points that Paul brings out in that, in that sermon? Now I know the sermon was much longer than that, but what are the two major points that, that Luke picks up on? Well... God is the creator of heaven and earth. Number one. Number two, He is the God who providentially cares for His creation, and that includes the people to whom Paul was talking. Two very important points. Creation and providence. Look at Acts chapter 17, verses 22 through 28. Now I'm not going to read it all. I'm going to make a ref, couple of references, but it, just look at seventeen twenty-two to twenty-eight. You'll recall the you'll recall the context. Paul had been in Athens. He was preaching the gospel. He spoke of the resurrection, and all of a sudden, people started saying, "You're you're talking to us about some strange deity. We want to hear more of this." And so they had Paul go to the Areopagus, and he stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and he addressed them, men of Athens. First of all, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, that is, your idols, but he didn't call them that, he said the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to the un, to an unknown God. You see, the Athenians were like many people in our day, they want to cover their whole, every base, you know, they want to cover them all. And so, that's what the Athenians did. They had all these gods. I think there was... Um, I think there were some thousand gods in Athens, and there was this one altar that said to an unknown god. And um, so Paul says, What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives... All gives you all life and breath and all things. And He made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God if perhaps they might grow after Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said. Now stop. Now let's think for a moment. What are the two salient points that Luke brings to our attention in that sermon of Paul's. It's, it was longer than this, but these are the two salient points that, that Luke brings to our attention. Number one, God is the creator. In fact, he gives three points. He says, God is the creator. Two, God uh, does not uh, dwell in temples made with hands, and he's not served by human beings. Three, Providence. God is the one, well, actually, if you think about it, he's referring back to Adam and Eve. From Adam, from one, every nation of mankind lived on the earth, from one. So God created man, and he refers to that. And then he refers to providence. So I should say that there are four salient points there, aren't there? God is the creator. God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, and he's not served by human hands. And he uh, created Adam. 
Paul doesn't say Adam, but that's who he's referring to. And from that one, he made every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And then he talks about providence, how God took care of them, how God determined their habitation. So Paul uses the same basic elements in gospel preaching to those who did not know the scripture. And it's an example that I think we should at least think about as we talk to other people. When Paul preached the gospel to those unfamiliar with the scripture, he began with the creation, he talked about providence, he talked about Adam and those kinds of things, but he did it in a way, um, he didn't quote the Bible, he just said, this is who God is. So, where did Paul get all of his information? Well, he got it from the Old Testament. Did he not? It seems to me that when Paul is preaching the gospel here, he begins not with Jesus died on a cross and was uh, raised from the dead, though he does he does talk about that, and he even talks about it in this in 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 the sermon at the Areopagus. But the point is, he begins with the fact that God created all things. He begins with Genesis one to three, and he proclaims the lordship of God. So the second thing I want to draw your attention to this morning is the idea that the gospel begins not in the New Testament, but it actually begins in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not going to take uh, any, uh, any more time on this, but I want you to read through Genesis 1-3 to this week. And I want you to notice, uh, notice uh, the details of the creation. Notice that it's God spoke and it came to be. Even if I know God used, God spoke things that they come out of the ground. They came out of the sea. Uh, And so people who believe in theistic evolution, and I'll explain that next week, but people who believe in that, they believe that they are, see, God used uh, the elements of this world uh, to create these things. Yes, He did, but the point is, he, He commanded that they come out, right? God said, let the earth bring forth. God said, let, let the sea bring forth. So it was God's command that produced whatever came out of the sea and whatever came up out of the land. God said, yeah, let the land produce fruit trees. Yes, but God spoke it. God commanded it. What does that say to you? Well, it should say to you that God, the, creation, the, God the Creator, is the Lord of heaven and of earth. We believe that. We confess that. We say that. But what people need to see when we're talking to them about the gospel is that God is the creator. He's the maker. He's the Lord. And that is the rub with people. They don't like authority. They don't like the the idea that there is someone over them. What we learn from Genesis and even from the rest of Scripture, but what we learn is that God's plan of salvation is not plan B. And this is what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to try to show you this. The Gospel is not 
plan B. God didn't create all the world and everything, put Adam and Eve in the garden, and then that was plan A. Oh, hey, it didn't work out. Now i got to have plan B. i got to decide to send Jesus and He'll die on the cross. That is not the Gospel. No, the, the Gospel is that the Gospel is the plan. It's not plan B. The Gospel is the plan. It's the only plan. Now our children, when they go to school, they're going to learn that creation is just a joke. That God doesn't really exist and He didn't create it and that's that. And someone might ask, and they might ask our children even, hasn't science refuted the idea of creation? That's what we hear. I've heard that by many scientists like uh, Lawrence Krauss, uh, the great new atheist um, astrophysicist. He's, he's always making, he's always uh, jabbing Christianity about it, not about science refuting it. So our children learn that. But is that true, that science has, has, has done that? And the answer is, well, I think Paul would say to our modern world that it's worshiping at the altar of an unknown God. That's precisely what science does. They, they think they know everything and they don't know anything. For all the hype scientists have, they have not, for all the hype, they, scientists have not and cannot debunk the creation account. They have merely moved away from the one true God to the unknown God. And we've got to remember that, that they are worshiping at the altar of an unknown God whether they know it or not. God had one plan when He created this world. And that one plan comes to its, to its climax in the Gospel because the Gospel is what gives us hope. The Gospel is promises us a, a future um, in, in heaven with our God, worshiping Him, serving Him, and living joyously and happily um, forever and ever. So for now, what I want you to remember, we've considered. I want you to pray about it. Think about it. The Gospel is the most important truth. Life and death hang in the balance of the Gospel. Second, this absolutely important, this necessary Gospel brings, it begins not in the New Testament, but it begins at the creation because the Gospel was part of God's eternal um, intention. That was His plan all along. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we do give You thanks for Your love and Your goodness to us. We pray that You would give us wisdom and insight. I know that a lot of Scripture passages were covered this morning, but it's so important for us not to have our own thoughts, but to have Your thoughts. And that's the only way that we can have them, is to have Your Word um, laid open before us. And uh, so we pray that You would use this in our lives. Give us pause to think about what we've heard this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.